welcome backwards. It's been a moment since I have done a podcast, a couple months I think actually. I've been very busy doing lots of things out and about in the world and haven't had as much time as I would like to sit down in studio and record. So uh, fortunately and unfortunately that has changed. Fortunately I say because obviously I get to do it right now. Unfortunately, it's because of the circumstances surrounding why I suddenly have a little bit more time. Uh, I <laughs> recently got into jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, and four classes in, I have blown out my knee two days ago. I'm thinking I partially tore my MCL, maybe the LCL. I don't think it's the ACL. Going to the doctors in two days. Um, I uh, heard a big pop and it hurt like hell, so I'm pretty sure I've torn something. Um, and this is going to be a podcast about Stoicism, philosophy from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And, uh, you know, one of my, uh, <laughs> one of the, one of my favorite teachings that comes from you know Stoic philosophy, but also from many other spiritual and philosophical traditions around the world, is that you know all obstacle obstacles are opportunities to find deeper powers hidden within us. Adversity is our greatest teacher, so embrace the lesson. So both in respects to the unfolding events in my real life, with my sudden extreme limitation <laughs> and discomfort, uh, and also. My appreciation of Stoic philosophy it seems like a perfect time to kind of dive into uh, the teachings of the Stoics. And um, so why did I get into Jiu-Jitsu, right? So um, first of all, I played contact sports like my entire life. I played football for 11 years. I played lacrosse for eight years, including two years in college. I kind of had an awakening, so to speak, and left lacrosse in college and went to India for a year studied Buddhism and jiu-jitsu while called Brazilian jiu-jitsu right it comes actually from Japan but its roots are traced back further into India specifically Buddhist monks practicing as a way to protect themselves traveling through India dealing with robbers and murderers and they didn't want to compromise their values of peace and compassion and love so jiu-jitsu became a way of defending themselves without becoming a violent person. A way essentially of using the opponent's momentum against themselves and, and disarming and subduing the opponent without killing them or you know, necessarily harming them in a lot of ways. Uh, and jiu-jitsu actually translates the etymology of it to gentle art. And I've been wanting to do martial arts for like a long time. Like I mentioned, I played contact sports my entire life, so that kind of engagement has always been something that I have a connection with. And it's been, even though sports, granted, they had a very spiritual energy to them. I wouldn't say like perspective, but an energy of just like breaking free from your limitations and confronting your fears and stepping out of your comfort zone and challenging yourself through adversity to overcome. And uh, my teacher, my Sherman Wells, always recommended martial arts. He himself did karate and Shaolin for many years. And I was like, yeah, I really should get into this. You know, it also, jujitsu, I felt in particular, has a strong connection with yoga as I practice a lot of yoga. It's a lot of movement, creative movement specifically, nonlinear movement, very beneficial for the mind, consciousness, 
and learning how to work with stress, work with discomfort, work with pain, and a creative and dynamic and uh, outside of the box way. So I found that studying about it seemed like a really cool, fun, challenging, intimidating practice to get into that would also be highly beneficial to anyone with a yogic uh, path. And uh, I listened to a book by one of the greatest, arguably the greatest jujitsu masters, Hicks and Gracie, very famous book, or very popular book rather, called Breathe. And the title in of itself, I think, is like a really cool uh, in insight into what he's talking about is that it's a book about martial arts, but it's titled Breathe. And there's a picture of him doing this like really crazy breath work where he's sucking his stomach in. And there's actually a scene in the Incredible Hulk movie from like 2008 or something like that with Edward Norton, where Edward Norton's the Incredible Hulk and he's down in Brazil and he's trying to find a way to gain control of, you know, his anger, Hulk problems, whatever it is. And he's actually sitting like in a in a kind of like a warehouse dojo with Hicks and Gracie, and Hicks and Gracie is teaching him this crazy breath work. And at one point, he like slaps Edward Norton as he's doing the breath work to try to like provoke him at the same time to like consciously control him. So the utilization of breath in the martial art from Hicks and Gracie's perspective is a very important piece, and one thing that kind of attracted me to learning it. It's uh, interesting, right, because it's not about violence. It's not about aggression. It's not about anger or hurting somebody. It's about how do you calm and tame the mind. And his entire, one of the large premise in the book is that through breath work, through emotional control, through challenging yourself through discipline, uh, character traits. And he himself says, <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes and he has a lot of personal failures and things like that. And was also involved in like straight up violent competition. But at the same time, his perspective about discipline, utilizing the breath, he was trained in like a very special type of breath work where you would imitate an animal and then behave like the animal in this hyperventilation type of thing. And he talks about entering into this really spiritual state of consciousness. And there's a, and there's a strong spiritual undertone for him that goes throughout, throughout the book. Um, he was extremely successful never once lost a fight in something like 400 fights and attributes it to this capacity to stay calm in uncomfortable situations and, and just that whole premise and the value of that teaching and how jujitsu could be a way to harness and deepen that discipline and how that can then be applied to anything not in specifically a martial arts environment or context but outside in everyday life how you're dealing with stressful relationships, conversations, circumstances, injuries, you know, death in the family, all kinds of stuff. And Hicks and Gracie's son was, by Hicks and Gracie's uh, observation, if that, that's the right word, but his, his sense was murdered when he was like 19 or something like that. It was mixed up with the wrong people. And he went missing and then they found his body and then... Uh, someone mailed a suitcase of his son's materials with like the Grim Reaper like drawn on it and Hicks and Gracie you know looked at this and said okay it's he was most likely murdered because he was involved in drugs and stuff like that and it 
brought him into this place of like extreme depression. I think at one point he describes this like he was near suicidal. And he goes off into the forest in Brazil. He kind of builds this like meditation plateau. And he spends a couple of years just meditating. And there's a moment where, if I'm remembering correctly, a small bird comes to him and he takes notice of it as a sign from like the spirit world that he can let go and that things are at peace and his son is okay and it brings a lot of souls to him but it's only after a couple of years of like deep intensity of questioning everything in his life and all the choices he's made and so on and so forth and from there he talks a lot about how you know fighting it was, it was like a spiritual practice for him how it's important to understand you know compassion and he said that his father, Elio Gracie, told him that with every negative, there is a positive. And this is very much this like simple premise of jiu-jitsu because it's a very Taoist philosophy. And it's a very philosophical martial art, not just a physical one, not just something that's meant to be a sport. In the United States, I think some of that philosophy, for some places, may have been lost on some level from what I understand. But uh, it's a very the philosophy of life, of movement, emotion, and awareness. And this whole idea of, like, with every give, there's a take, every push, there's a pull, with every positive, there's a negative, every negative, positive. And so he's meditating on what his father, Elio Gracie, told him, who is one of the, him and his brother, Carlos Gracie, so Elio and Carlos, they're responsible for taking this Japanese version of jiu-jitsu, which came from India, they absorbed it in Brazil, and they brought it out into the world, and it became the um like the most effective martial art uh out there and it became clear that you could not become an effective fighter unless you learned jujitsu so just a quick side thing there but he's reflecting on this premise and he's saying what is the what is the positive of my son being you know murdered what a horrible thing that was and what he's able to derive from that meditation is that becoming deeply deeply present and he says that, you know, in the past, had he been driving to the airport and he's waiting for uh, to get on a plane or something like that and someone calls, he would not answer the phone, family member specifically calling. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I was talking, I guess, to the location, his daughter or another son or something. And he says now, after what's happened with my son, realizing like the preciousness of life, perhaps you could say like the fragility of life, he says that I will pull over stop what I'm doing, potentially miss the flight, and answer the call and see what the person needs and be fully present. And just recognizing that we are mistaking what in life we need to be present for uh, until after the fact. <laughs> and I'm, I'm laughing too because I'm just reflecting on like, as you know, when you have a big injury, like it blew out my knee two days ago, it's like, I'm thinking to myself, what could I have been more present with? This is my own meditation about it. And there's plenty of things, right? As I now can't move around the house very well or anything like that, and I can't take care of a lot of things I'm supposed to be taking care of. It's a very frustrating position to be in. But nonetheless, there is a, a positive within the negative, and negative's obvious. The positive is something that's going to slowly creep its head in, and I'm sure it'll be, uh, as you look back, very beneficial. And... So that's kind of just like a little bit about what kind of got me inspired with Jiu-Jitsu. Listening a little bit more of what Hicks and Gracie talked about, and he was just saying he one point fought with a lot of anger from a place of like vengeance for someone that had beaten his brother, 
and afterwards reflecting on it, he realized he was totally sloppy and ineffective and out of control. And from that moment, he vowed never again to fight with anger or a undisciplined mind. And how the whole premise of the martial arts is to, is to gain control of your mind and to gain control of your emotions, not to allow them to take you and uh, tame your horses, so to speak. This is all very stoic type of philosophy as well. So, uh, and he talks about when he was younger, he was very afraid of claustrophobia, had a very intense claustrophobic experience. He was like 12 or something like that on the mat that caused him to tap out really early. So he had his uh, brother roll him up in a huge sweaty, I'm sorry, huge filthy rug in the brutal heat of Brazil in the summertime, super humid. And he laid there for, I think, a couple hours and just dealt with the sensation of panic and claustrophobia. <laughs> and uh, there's a documentary about him where there's footage of him, like, going in ice water, like, long time ago. I think it was, like, in the early 90s or something like that before anybody really knew about it. And jujitsu, just from the little bit that I've done, is, like, it's moments where you're in very intense, uncomfortable, painful positions, and you're reaction is to want to get out or panic but instead if you can stay calm and as he says breathe then you're able to kind of see where your leeway is where your leverage is and you can start to finagle your way out of it so it's a pretty cool martial art um and there's no punching or hitting which i appreciate because doing years of football and lacrosse i took a number of shots in the head and never has serious concussion that i'm aware of but nonetheless i with all the information about things like CTE and all the kind of things that can happen with head trauma, uh, getting punched in the head and punching other people is, is very unappealing to me. Um, and, you know, on the opposite, you have someone like Marcus Aurelius, one of the most famous Stoics ever, who was philosopher king of Rome, right? And he says that the art of living is more like wrestling than dancing. Because an artful life requires being prepared to meet and withstand sudden and unexpected attacks. <laughs> and I like this quote a lot because, I, it, first of all, I think it's profoundly accurate. And I think New Age people have kind of sanitized life in a false way with a perspective like that. For instance, you want everything to be beautiful and pleasant but in fact, we live in a predatory universe, as my teacher, Meister Manuel, says. There are things that are just coming after you. That's why you have to wash your hands. <laughs> That's why you have to wear shoes. That's why you have to have a house. That's why you have to have, you know, trusted relationships. That's why all these things in the world exist. It doesn't mean that we're condoning violence or aggression or anything like that, because that's not the perspective. It's just a recognition that there is no way to not be engaged in the conflict and the strife and the friction of life and this friction is more attuned to wrestling than dancing as marcus really observes and there's a great youtube video of uh alan watts he's doing the narration it's like an animation uh of what he's talking about i forgot what it's called but at the premise of it is like he says you know life was a musical thing and you were supposed to dance. It wasn't supposed to be something that you accomplish or achieve. And it's like kind of ends in this poignant way. Like, oh, those people in the capitalistic, materialistic society have totally lost 
their sense of what the whole thing was for, which is completely accurate, by the way. <laughs> and now they don't realize it's supposed to be a dance. And I prefer Marcus Aurelius's statement here, although I don't think the two are in necessary completely contradiction with one another. But this idea that like, yeah, you could just dance your way through life, but no one attacks you in dance. But if you go through life and no one ever attacks you, I don't think you actually went through it in one way or another. Like I said, even if you go to the bathroom, you have to wash your hands because then there's pathogens that are on your hands that will potentially make you sick and could kill you. Uh, and Vipassana says, you know, do no harm and do not kill anything. It's one of the virtues you take in the Buddhist meditation practice. And I always thought it was funny because it's like they put... Um, Purell or something out there and it's like kills 99.9% of germs <laughs> so it's kind of like yeah do no harm but accept to those things because otherwise we'll be in trouble so there's sort of like a, a reality check that I like when Marcus Aurelius here is talking about he himself was a wrestler and that's one thing that's cool about the Stoics is that they were not renunciates. So to me, Stoicism has a lot of like Buddhist philosophy without the metaphysical, mystical aspects of it, and without the renunciation. You can definitely 100% be a Buddhist and not be a renunciate. Uh, you know, some students went to a lecture of Chogunang Trungpa, some hippies in the 60s when he when he first came from Tibet to the United States. <laughs> after the lecture, this one long-haired dude just raises his hand and goes, so are you saying, after my understanding correctly, that what you're telling us, we should basically cut our hair, change our clothes, and just get a normal job? And Trungpa just goes, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Trying to teach people like that there's a lot of egotism in I'm different, I'm unique, or something like that. Just not necessarily in my opinion, verbatim saying, yeah, you need to go work a corporate job. I don't think verbatim that's what he's saying. But to drive his point across that there's egotism and a lack of freedom in constantly creating a division between you and others, whether or not you're on the flower power side or the police side is what his point was. So, um, coming back then, right, stoicism is like how do you, you want to engage with the world. So it has a kind of similar nature to the Bhagavad Gita. You want to be, you're, they were statesmen. They were, you know, I think Epictetus was a slave. You have people that uh, did all kinds of jobs and they were engaged with the world. They weren't sitting in a cave meditating. They were very much embedded into society and they held positions of power too, which is a very interesting thing because it's like we associate most people who take positions of power with corruption and all kinds of moral failure a lot of the times, so not all the time. And a lot of Stoics held high positions of power, and they're striving to live a life of principle, values, and virtue, uh, and, you know, fo focusing on, like, temperance, focusing on courage, uh, focusing on self-restraint, focusing on benefiting others, being in attuned with nature, harmony with nature and flow and understanding i would say almost like frugality like having less is more and that what is it that you can control is your inner state how you respond and mastering your mind and not controlling outside events being strict with yourself not strict with others understanding with others 
but being engaged highly with life, embracing adversity, discomfort, stress, and participating in the contradiction of things. And so it's a really great philosophy for virtually anybody who's not a renunciate because the idea is just to find how can we harmonize with nature and embrace what's happening to us and where does our freedom and our agency and our power lie. So he wrote a book called The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. In each uh, part, he has a quote, and then he gives an analysis. And what I felt like doing, because I want to, as a student of life and these philosophies as well, I want to read the quote and then give my own interpretation as I find that I'm not teaching or anything like at this moment what I'm doing is I'm trying to understand the material and I find the best way to engage with the material is to speak about it in a stream of consciousness and make connections it will help solidify one's understanding of the pack path and the practice so I'm a student I'm learning I fail constantly but as we'll get more into it the failure is only a failure if you are not flexible with it so opening quote here is from Seneca who was one of the most famous Stoics as he was the like a he, teacher and assistant to Nero who was like this horrific emperor of Rome who did all these terrible things like kill his mother and Seneca was eventually himself put to death by Nero and Seneca in a lot of ways from what I understand is looked at as kind of like a hypocrite because he has this really beautiful philosophy but his own life perhaps he did not live up to it based off of our understanding of him as a historical figure who knows what the guy was actually like his quote is of all people only those are at leisure who make time for philosophy only they truly live not satisfied to merely keep good watch over their own days they annex every age to their own all the harvest of the past is added to their store. Only an ingrate would fail to see that these great architects of venerable thoughts were born for us and have designed a way of life for us. So he's saying, right, the unexamined life is not worth living, Socrates proclaimed a long time ago. We have to look at ourselves with rootless honesty and attempt to change ourselves, and that will lead to a genuine satisfaction just because people are able to take care of what their daily life doesn't mean that they've truly lived so philosophy as a dharma as a daily practice not just as an intellectual thing and this is something i like that ryan holiday talked a lot about people affiliate philosophy as this like you know it's the professor in the college ivory tower looking at books and that's not what the stoics were i said epictetus was a slave you know, Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome's most powerful person, perhaps. I don't want to say of all time, who knows, but one of the most powerful people of all time, commanding an army and dealing with a plague that came through Rome. Then you have Seneca, who was uh, an assistant to an emperor. These aren't people that are just sitting alone and abstractly thinking about life. They're making decisions that are impacting the whole planet. Or they're in a brutal environment, such as Epictetus as a slave. Socrates, very stoic in many ways, was actually a warrior and fought in combat, and I believe killed people and was injured. So, interesting to think about. These are not people that are on the fringe in some random place. They're 
in the centerpiece of society in many ways. Okay, so part one, looking at the discipline of perception. Quote by Epictetus. Epictetus being a slave and one of the most famous Stoic philosophers, nonetheless, was a slave. Epictetus says, The chief task in life is simply this, to identify and separate matters so that I can say clearly to myself which are externals not under my control, and which have to do with the choices I actually control. Where then do I look for good and evil, not to uncontrollable externals, but within myself to the choices that are my own? So, the way that I'm interpreting this is that the most important thing that we can do is understand that we have control over their inner space. We have agency empowerment under what's happening inside of us. If we keep looking to the outside world as something that we can manipulate like a chessboard, then we are deceiving ourselves. And that when do I look for good and evil? Not to the uncontrolled externals, but within myself. Within myself, this is where the source of both peace and conflict arise. And it is up to me to make a choice into which direction I want these to want that to go into. Epictetus again. What is the fruit of these teachings? Only the most beautiful and proper harvest of the truly educated tranquility fearlessness and freedom we should not trust the masses who say only the free can be educated but rather the lovers of wisdom who say that only the educated are free so being that epictetus was a slave this is a particularly beautiful and empowering revelation to hear coming from him it's not about being person who has access to everything and all the opportunities and has external abundance and talent and gifts it, it's not about that at all what he's saying is that the person who's able to penetrate self-knowledge and is understand the inner depths of themselves that is the truly free person the person who can penetrate the cave within the heart that is the person that has come to tranquility, fearlessness, and freedom. And this can be done whether you are the emperor of Rome, as was Marcus Aurelius, or a slave of Rome, which is Epictetus. Seneca, on the brevity of life. How many have laid waste to your life when you were not aware of what you were losing? How much was wasted in pointless grief, foolish joy, greedy desire and social amusements how little of your own was left to you you will realize you are dying before your own time this is a very just super powerful thing to reflect on how much of what is actually important to us we sacrifice because of things like social pressure uh, superficial desires cluelessness and drama right social amusements greedy desire foolish joy and pointless grief drama <laughs> drama is 
when you look around, it's so easy to see when other people are caught in it, but how often we all get caught in it ourselves and just how much it takes away from our life. Once we start to recognize this, the pointlessness of drama, the pointlessness, pointlessness of conforming, conformity and, and trying to fit into anything, the, the lack of satisfaction that comes from chasing after superficial, sensual desires, what we start to recognize is that there is a very short time that we have here on earth. And if we get caught in these things, we are sacrificing our entire life. You will realize you are dying before your time. In a sense, you are already dead because you are caught in these things. And this is, I think, in a lot of ways, a parallel to like this Buddhist concept of samsara, the states of consciousness that we get caught in, craving, aversion, fear, desire, these states that bring us into places. And then we, we finally have a moment where something hits us and we realize, wait a minute, I could be gone tomorrow. I could be gone in an hour. Everyone and everything I know will be gone at some moment. And that I'm here at this very short period of time. What is it I want to do with my life? What was it that I was sent here to do? What was the mission? What was the purpose of the whole ordeal? It was not just to be caught up in this samsaric cycle of one craving after another, constantly looking for the next thing, or being afraid and overwhelmed of things, you know, leaving outside of our control. So recognizing the, the value of your life and act upon the true deeper intentions and purpose of your existence. Marcus Aurelius, all you need are these, certainty of judgment in the present moment, action for the common good in the present moment, and an attitude of gratitude in the present moment for anything that comes your way. So in a lot of ways, this is kind of like the antidote to the last quote, right? You know, we find ourselves chasing after superficial and, and flipping things and getting caught up in nonsense because our undisciplined mind instead have connection to what's happening in the present moment. Do not superimpose your projections, your belief systems, your conceptualizations, your intellectualizations upon reality as much as possible harmonize with the present moment from yogic perspective so to speak and then take action for the common good think about others be in service towards others be in benefit towards others and then always have gratitude for anything and everything that happens because anything and everything that happens is an opportunity for you to deepen your practice and your understanding of life Utilize everything that happens to you as fire for your awakening. It's all fuel. So what he's offering here is this perspective to stay completely open to what is happening in the here and now. Easier said than done. <laughs> but that's why this is a practice. This is a daily practice. This is not something that we just read over once and say, okay, I'll do that. This is something that we need to look at daily. And in Marcus Aurelius's case, he journaled this. And this comes from his book, Meditations, which was 
a private journal for himself that eventually was published after his death. So this is him speaking to himself here. He's not trying to offer advice to anyone but his own self. He's saying that this is the way to be based off of his understanding of the teachings and the position and actions that he has taken. Let all your efforts be disturbed to something. Let it keep that end in view. It's not activity that disturbs people, but false conceptions of things that drive them mad. Seneca. So when I hear this, what comes to me is that you can find tremendous stillness and movement. I think about the Sufi uh, dervish whirlers spinning, but inside they're calm, 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 totally calm, even though there's chaos all around them. You know, there's dizziness all around them, but they're able to become a still point, an unmovable center. And understanding that it's not the activity that's causing craziness in people. It's not that at all. Rather, it's the false conception of things. It's not being able to see when enough is enough. It's not being able to have a clear end in sight for a project. When to shut your mouth, perhaps when it's time to rest it's getting caught in momentum that won't stop this is in a lot of ways like addiction right this is the sense of us not being able to quell ourselves and restrain ourselves so this is understanding like have the discipline of movement in a certain direction with clear vision but also understand like there needs to be a moment of self-restraint and temperance you need to be able to control yourself. And that just that statement right there, control yourself, that's a huge aspect of the Stoic philosophy that is very helpful to just reflect on how better can I control myself, especially in relationship to my, my goals. We could just think about like the economic system of capitalism, how it can become just like this cancerous thing that just takes over everything, obliterating the entire environment. You think about the Native Americans saying, you know, only when all the water is polluted, when you can't eat the food, all the animals are dead, all the trees are gone, you can't breathe the air, there's nothing left but like wasteland, then you will realize you cannot eat money. And the power of that statement. And I, on some level, this is to me what Seneca is getting at. It's not activity and movement. It's fine to do that. But when you're not able to have the discipline to say enough, and understand what the purpose and the point of the movement was, that's when madness has arisen. And, and that's in a lot of ways just modern society as we see it right now. Always needs to be more. The myth of more. Obsessiveness. Marcus Aurelius, Meditations. A person who doesn't know what the universe is doesn't know where they are. A person who doesn't know their purpose in life doesn't know who they are or what the universe is. A person who doesn't know any one of these things doesn't know why they are here. So what to make of people who seek or avoid the praise of those who have no knowledge or where or who they are? This is a really good quote, man. I like this one a lot. There's a lot here, right? The first part, a person who doesn't know what the universe is doesn't know where they are. It, this is a very mystical statement, right? understanding the sublime the infinite the divine and recognizing your position within it because 
if you're in a total arrogance and ignorance, then you take an egocentric perspective. And we know for a fact, on some level at least, that Marcus Aurelius did not take this perspective in his life. For one, when he was given you know, absolute authority of the most powerful empire on earth at the time, he chose to give half the power to his brother because he didn't want absolute power, understanding the, um, the danger of that for himself and others. So we need to understand what the universe is. We need to understand God. Then understand where you are in relationship to that because maybe your thoughts and your belief system is just a bunch of bullshit and maybe you're really not that important and maybe you're just another person and you're totally self-indulgent and you really need to take a big dose of humility <laughs> talking to myself as much as i am anybody else right like this is a constant thing this is coming from the emperor right he's saying we need to check ourselves that's how i'm interpreting this statement a person who doesn't know their purpose in life doesn't know who they are or what the universe is. So having clear and defined sense of purpose. Otherwise, we're wandering around in ignorance and confusion. You have some degree of a mission. You have something that you were sent here to do and you must act upon it. Otherwise, if you don't have clarity of this, you will find yourself... In all kinds of situations, deeply confused as to how you got there. And we've all been there. It's not like, you know, any one person has it masterfully figured out necessarily. But this is something that we need to reflect upon. Of like, what is our purpose? And how are our actions in aligned with that purpose? He says, a person who doesn't know any one of these things doesn't know why they are here. So what to make of people who seek or avoid the praise of those who have no knowledge of where or who they are? And that, I love that part. I just, I love the stoic thing where it's like, let's push back against conformity, social norms, and, you know, avoid praise. And like, so right, right there, right? This is the emperor of Rome. He's a politician, he needs to, in order to be an effective ruler, he has to gain the, uh, on some level, level, the approval of people. He has to be, on some level, convincing and persuasive. And you can imagine him writing this and being like, why am I even giving two shits about anybody's opinion of me? Because the majority of what he's saying the masses and we're not talking about the masses in the sense of like uh socioeconomic status because marcus aurelius was a student of epictetus who was a slave so he's not saying it in the sense of like just because they're not the emperor in the social class i don't value their opinion we know that he valued epictetus's work because he's a philosopher but he was also a slave so marcus aurelius is someone that was able to look transcendentally through uh specific socioeconomic superficial things like that to some degree don't know the guy personally but we can you know trust that that was where he's coming from but he's looking at it like as he's probably giving a speech like why am i caring about what you know the masses have to say why or just an individual that one meets why do we feel the need to mimic and conform and lose sight of where we're standing and not hold firm in our values and our integrity 
and cave in just to any one person's criticism or the criticism of the masses? How can we have conviction to hold true to our values of who we are and what we stand for? Understand your mission in, in the universe and what the universe is. This will provide tremendous clarity for what's happening in your life. So this is a really important, empowering, and beautiful quote. And that's like a lot of what Stoicism is, right? It's trying to empower us from within by shifting our perspective and understanding where is the control. Epictetus. The proper work of the mind is the exercise of choice, refusal, yearning, repulsion, preparation, purpose, and assent. What then can pollute and clog the mind's proper functioning? Nothing but its own corrupt decisions. So I'm actually going to read here what Ryan Holiday wrote because I've been skipping his interpretations of things, which is fantastic, and you can get the book and listen to it. Um, but it, it would take me be like a 30-hour podcast if I did the whole thing, so I'm not going to read his stuff as much. Nonetheless, this is Ryan Holiday's. He breaks down each one of those tasks. Choice, to do and think right. Refusal of temptation. Yearning to be better. Repulsion of negativity, of bad influences, of what isn't true. Preparation for what lies ahead or whatever may happen. Purpose. Our guiding principle and highest priority. Ascent, to be free of deception about what's inside and outside our control and be ready to accept the latter. So, what we're talking about here, Epictetus and Holiday saying, discipline the mind. Make it work in the right function. Get it moving in a place where you have a firm and strong mind that is not sloppy and all over the place it needs to have these uh, value systems guiding it and I, I love here he says what then can pollute and clog the mind's proper functioning you know referring to the natural functioning remember stoicism connection to nature nothing but its own corrupt decisions personal responsibility is what he's talking about that is what pollute you is your own lack of taking responsibility for your situation internally not blaming others not being a victim and remember this is coming from a slave <laughs> this is someone that does not even own their life by society's definitions so makes it all the more badass and awesome it's like this is a person saying i'm a slave but do you know what can pollute and clog my inner space nothing but my own corrupt decisions so i need to take responsibility for what happens as do all of us and this is a good next quote here to follow up with that premise by seneca we must give up many things to which we are addicted considering them to be good otherwise courage will vanish which should continually test itself greatness of soul will be lost which can't stand out unless it disdains as petty what the mob regards as most desirable. Beautiful quote, right? When we succumb to vice, courage diminishes. You know, nothing more really needs to be said about our relationship to vice. You want courage? Get rid of vice. You know, and Mahatma Gandhi says, you know, you push against vice and desire and the tapas, you generate fire inside the purification the purification of fire 
and I was listening to a book on jujitsu, and they're saying jujitsu is utilization of the fire, and it's the purifying act of fire. It's using it, harness it to challenge us. So just to tie it back to jujitsu, because I love the philosophy of it. And <laughs> what we're talking here, though, is like courage comes out of us resisting our lower impulse and the greatness of our soul which in a lot of ways is why we are here in relation our, our, each one of us is here to bring forth the greatness of our own soul in whatever you know way that shape or form that will take but in essence that's the main feeling of it you know in mission i would say and that will never happen if we just go along with what the herd and the society and the you know superficial values and in today's society even more than back then in rome i mean you, i was driving new york city it was like posters for alcohol and tobacco and just all kinds of bullshit and you just realize like yeah if you get caught up in that chain then there will be a lot of regret when you look back in life and then important too because there's also all the other addictions you know instagram uh just looking at your phone excessive screen time in general so i we all struggle with that i think in globalized modern society but you know important for us to be real with ourselves and see our addictions and have the courage to change epictetus some things are in our control while others are not we control our opinion choice desire aversion and in a word everything of our own doing we don't control our body property reputation position in a word everything not of our own doing even more the things in our control are by nature free unhindered and unobstructed while those not in our control are weak slavish can be hindered and not our own so i think he's just trying to point out here that your freedom is very obviously just within own relationship to your mind and understanding that uh, that's enough we don't need more than that that's actually a tremendous amount of tooling to work with and difficult enough to work with on its own and if someone was to disagree on that try really controlling your opinion and your desires and your aversions it's very difficult it's not outside of your capacity but it is very very difficult epictetus the essence of good is a certain kind of reasoned choice just as the essence of evil is another kind what about externals they are only the raw material for our reasoned choice which finds its own good or evil in working with them how will it find the good not by marveling at the material for if judgments about the material are straight and that makes our choices good but if those judgments are twisted our choices turn bad so what he's saying is that don't get caught marveling at the material don't get caught obsessing about things in the outside world because if you're caught up in the spectacle and you lose not the judgmental mind but the discerning mind 
you know, we're not talking about judging. We're talking about discernment. That's more, I think, the appropriate word here. Judgment is too uh, moralistic. Discernment is just skillful means in dealing with things that arise in life. And if we, if our discernment is off, then even if something's very beautiful, it can turn into a very dark situation. A famous saying, right? All poison is medicine, and all medicine is poison. So, utilizing discernment for the dosage, the use, the intention, the method, and recognizing that, uh, as Ryan Holiday says, it's not about eliminating outside influences, running away to quiet and solitude. It's about filtering the outside world through the straightener of our judgment. That's what our reason can do. It can take the crooked, confusing, and overwhelming nature of external events and make them orderly. So learning how to understand your own lens and your own mind, your capacity to be reasonable, that is where, you know, eating from the tree of good and evil comes in. Things outside there, we can't really know quite how it's going to turn out. It's really more important to be working with the inner framing of the external situation. That's why certain people can... You know, win a million dollars in the lottery and their life turns out great and other people it turns into a total catastrophe the events in and of themselves are not good or bad and there's that very famous zen story right and i had to look it up because i couldn't remember exactly how it goes even though it's very simple but nonetheless um here we go once upon a time a fine fall morning an old farmer went out to tend his animals and crops at first light, the father was dismayed to see his fence had been crushed by a falling tree during the night. All three of the farmer's prized horses had disappeared. The other villagers moaned in symphony, sympathy. Whatever will you do, they asked the farmer. This is terrible, they all cried, shaking their heads sadly, and right before the harvest time, too. We'll see, was the farmer's only reply as he returned to the chores. Later that morning, the farmer heard the sound of hooves and looking up saw his three horses had returned. What was more, the three horses had two wild horses running with them. Soon the villagers were heard to express their delight at the farmer's good fortune. What a wonderful thing to have happened, the other villagers cried. What a wealthy man you will be with this new stock of animals. We'll see, said the old farmer. And I'm not going to keep going with the whole thing, but then what happens is his son breaks his leg tending to the animals, and everyone goes, oh my god, what a disaster, and the farmer goes, we'll see, but then it turns out there's a crazy war happening, and then all the sons are sent to the military, but his son doesn't have to go, and the villagers go, ah, oh, how wonderful, and the farmer goes, yeah, we'll see, and it just kind of keeps going like this, because, you know, it's not what initially happens, right, it's like, it's part of a larger context, and I was, you know, this whole thing talking in the beginning with, Hicks and Gracie and his father, Elio, telling him, with every good thing, there's also a negative thing. Every negative thing, there's a positive thing. And so taking this more Zen perspective of, yeah, let's be equanimous, which is also very stoic. We'll see. We'll see what's happening because if it's difficult right now. I'm being choked right now in this headlock. But if I can just maneuver, all of a sudden there's some other position that's providing me. And this is the same thing that... Uh, <laughs> Epictetus is talking about here is that the situation is not bad it's not good or evil it's us that's making it as such so remain equanimous and have the wisdom to process through it even if it's very difficult to stomach and bitter medicine 
and you'll find that there is some illumination that unfolds through it. <laughs> Epictetus. For if a person shifts their caution to their own reason choices and acts of those choices, they will at the same time gain the will to avoid. But if they shift their caution away from their own reason choices to things not under their control, seeking to avoid what is controlled by others, then they will be agitated, fearful, and unstable. So synchronistically here, uh, Ryan Holiday in the first line of his, of his uh, interpretation of this mentions Zen as well. But he's saying that like this is the idea that the Stoics are not like a Zen monk in a perfect, green, quiet, beautiful temple, which... I'm sure there's plenty of Zen monks that don't live in such environments. Nonetheless, he's saying the Stoics are the antithesis of this idea. They're the person in the marketplace, the senator in the forum, the brave wife waiting for her soldier to return from battle, the sculptor busy in their studio. Still, the Stoic is equally at peace. So understanding that tranquility, peace, equanimity is coming from within, and that it is within the inner space. It is not something to be cultivated on the external. You know, you could go on vacation to a tropical island and be in the most hellish state of consciousness ever. And on the alternative, you could go do a vision quest and be fasting for many days without sleep and totally distraught and find tremendous transcendental stillness and peace of mind. So understanding, right, once again... Where is our agency? Epictetus. Keep this thought at the ready at daybreak and through the day and night. There is only one path to happiness, and that is giving up all outside of your sphere of choice regarding nothing else as your possession, surrendering all else to God and fortune. As he says, there is only one path to happiness. And that's in the act of surrender, of letting go, of trusting God. And I think it can be easily shown that this is a truth pushed forward by all wisdom traditions through all ages and all cultures. The act of surrender to what is happening is the path to happiness, not putting up resistance to the present moment being in aligned with what is according trusting in god to have surrender is to have faith and to have trust to have peace of mind okay epictetus we control our reason choice and all acts that depend on that moral will What's not under our control are the body and any of its parts, possessions, parents, siblings, children, or country, anything with which we might associate. So that's why participation in society and not renunciation can be a powerful, transformative spiritual act if we bring the appropriate degree of philosophy, dharma, consciousness, and action to it. Because what better way to learn that you don't have control than to get deeply embedded with something? Our parents, our children, our spouse, trying to govern a country. How 
how illuminating it is when the outside world does not do what we want it to do. Ram Das says, if you want to be enlightened, or rather, if you think you are enlightened, go spend a weekend with your parents. This is what he's talking about. It's recognizing that we have these intense triggers around controlling the outside world. And if we think we have let gone everything, come into a place of serenity, get close to those that are close to you. And you will find out just how deeply you are still embedded in your need to control, possess, and change things that are outside of your capacity to do so. So the freedom comes when we apply this dharma and philosophy to that ignorance and defilement of the mind, so to speak. And that's why the opening quote of this book, Seneca is saying like the importance of studying and acting upon the philosophy. Because otherwise you will just be running in circles samsara marcus aurelius understand at last that you have something in you more powerful and divine than what causes the bodily passions and pulls you like a mere puppet what thoughts now occupy in my mind is it not fear suspicion desire or something like that this seems like a, almost like a call to arms you know, because he's, remember, he's talking to himself here, no one else. He's not expecting anyone to read this. And what he's saying is, uh, there's something in you more powerful and godlike than just your sexual desires, your food cravings, need for attention, approval, self-obsession, validation from the outside world. There's something much deeper in you that drives you forward and align yourself with that meditate on that connect to that don't become a puppet that's a beautiful and haunting and kind of disturbing metaphor right a puppet don't become a puppet become the puppet master of yourself take responsibility for yourself you have something in you that is divine and more powerful that can guide you into as Trognam Trungpa said, sanity. Seneca. Tranquility cannot be grasped except by those who have reached an unwavering and firm power of judgment. The rest constantly fall and rise in their decisions, wavering in a state of alternately rejecting and accepting things. What is the cause of this back and forth? It's because nothing is clear and they rely on the most uncertain guide common opinion this to me is like perfect with that uh zen story right the common folk oh how bad oh how good oh how bad the horse got the horse got hurt oh my god oh no there's more horses okay your son's hurt how bad oh a nice little war oh good <laughs> like just there's this there it's a fickle it's it's uh capricious it's just totally it's lacking conviction it's lacking firmness and groundedness and a clear perception of reality so what he's saying it they're going back and forth they're they're wavering in a state of alternately rejecting and accepting things reactivity this perfect perfect way stoic explanation of samsara right it's just you're in a cycle caught in a cycle this way that way this way that way there's no clarity because nothing is clear he even says that right because they rely on common opinion when we're able to root ourselves in the dharma in philosophy in equanimity then we can become tolerant and firm and resilient. So even if something is like uncomfortable or 
adverse or difficult, we can, you know, instead of being like, this is bad, we can go, deep breath. <sighs> hmm. Okay, here are, is the scenario, and here are my options. Here is where my freedom of movement is and my freedom of control, and here is where I am totally confined, and here is where one door closed and another door opened. Okay. I'm going to move in that direction and transform and transmute and alchemize the thing. So this is just, a, you know, it's a great philosophy, right? But once again, this is something that you have to embed into your neurological framework. When things happen, when shit happens, you have to be like, hmm, deep breath, Hicks and Gracie, I breathe. <laughs> Stay calm in uncomfortable situations, right? That's the whole practice. <laughs> we have a quote from Musonius Rufus, a fantastic name. <laughs> so in the majority of other things, we address circumstances not in accordance with the right assumptions, but mostly by following wretched habit. Since all that I've said is the case, the person in training must seek to rise above so as to stop seeking out pleasure and steering away from pain, to stop clinging to living in a boring death, and in the case of property and money, to stop valuing, receiving, or giving. I think that this quote does not require too much interpretation. It feels pretty straightforward. It's also could have been put right in the Bhagavad Gita about the war between our lower and higher natures, the conflict, and I like... You know, stop seeking pleasure and stop steering away from pain. The wisdom of that. I've talked about, about that a lot in, on this podcast. Is like the wisdom of your nervous system, how it responds to adversity, how it responds to discomfort. It actually makes you stronger physically, neurologically, biologically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Stop clinging to living in a boring death. One of the first and most powerful phrases in the Bhagavad Gita. Only the learned, the learned grieve neither for the living nor the dead. You know, understanding the illusion of death. Understanding the illusion of form. Understanding the nature of the eternal. And in the case of property and money, to stop valuing, receiving, or giving. Be generous care for others support other people don't be covetous and possessive and egotistical that is not the way of a true philosopher epictetus i am your teacher and you are learning in my school my aim is to bring you to completion unhindered free from compulsive behavior unrestrained without shame free flourishing and happy looking to God in things great and small. Your aim is to learn and diligently practice all these things. Why then don't you complete the work if you have the right aim and I have both the right aim and right preparation? What is missing? The work is quite feasible and is the only thing in our power. Let go of the past. We must only begin. Believe me and you will see. This sounds a lot to me like Lao Tzu and the Tao Tai Ching saying, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And this other phrase, jump and the net will appear. Trust the universe. Sri uh, Nizgarata Maharaj's teacher said something like, just apply effort, try and see what will happen. 
have faith and you can move mountains, Jesus says. This is all people all saying the exact same thing. What is missing? The work is quite feasible. It's the only thing in our power. It's the only thing. Ram Dass would say it's the only game in town, man. It's the only thing. It's it. You get caught up in all the other distractions and stuff. It's the only thing. Let go of the past and just begin in the present. Believe me and you will see. And just like this person's life, not just their words, a testament, because it's a slave thousands of years ago. And it's extraordinarily relevant in the present moment. We're all talking about it. And even not that didn't even take that long because the emperor of the country in which he was a slave was studying his work. So obviously there's tremendous power in what the person is talking about. You know, Tao Tai Ching, the way and his power. This is what, this is the kind of power Epictetus has. Something's profound, right? Just, but only through that, just initial step, beginning, must only begin. It's the first step. That's it. Everything else will unfold from there. Jump and the net will appear. Take one step towards the universe and the truth and it will take one step towards you. And so on and so forth. So, have faith in yourself. You know, courage is not being unafraid. It's being afraid but still taking action. And that's what the invitation from Epictetus is. Saying, look, the, uh, the the field is is prime you know this is a, a ripening moment for you to act upon these truths this is your chance you must only start and you will find what you are looking for seek and you shall find marcus aurelius pass through this brief patch of time in harmony with nature and come to your final resting place gracefully just as a ripened olive might drop praising the earth that nourished it and grateful to the tree that gave it growth. This to me sounds like kind of that quote about know the universe and you'll know your position in it. Speaking about humility, an olive praises the earth and it's grateful to the tree. Be like that. Give gratitude to your environment. You know, honor your environment and all those people and things in it celebrate it and understand your connection to it and that you are a byproduct of it that you came out of it have the humility to understand that in the lack of your own self-importance that you're a reflection of all these things in your relationships around you to all your relations and see you know the beauty in nature which is to say like the beauty in the mundane and the simple and the divinity in that and the process of going from you know a seed to a tree to the fruit and understanding your connection with nature and that you yourself as above so below you are a part of the whole and you are an expression of that through gratitude and perspective you can have that empowered and loving connection within the elements You can think in contrast to someone that is bitter and resentful and, uh, you know, I'm a victim and I was abused and I was traumatized and all these terrible things happened to me and I'm miserable. Instead, have the position of, like, just like nature does. It it goes gracefully, right? It's not clinging. The fruit doesn't cling. It goes gracefully with gratitude and praise and beauty.
Epictetus. A podium and a prison is each a place, one high and the other low. But in either place, your freedom of choice can be maintained if you so wish. So, if this was only being stated by the rich and famous, then we might question it. But once again, it's being stated by a slave. Recognizing that freedom comes from within. And talking on this podcast about people like Viktor Frankl and Edith Eager, who Ryan Holiday is also talks a lot about because they're very stoic in their perspective, right? The idea of like Edith Eager in a concentration camp, but still able to find joy in recognizing that the Nazi guards were the prisoners, not her, because she was able to connect to her joy when they made her dance. And she was able to be in that bliss, even in the most hellish place of all time. And that we have a choice to find freedom. And just because the external circumstances look one way doesn't mean that internally they're being experienced as such. So I always say, don't judge another's insides by their outsides, something along those lines. You know, become acutely aware just because something looks like something doesn't mean internally they have realized and come to a place of what we're seeking. So don't get caught up in the spectacle just like in Plato's allegory of the cave there you know you, you break free from the shackles and you go to the next level and you see people holding the objects in front of the fire but those people are complete slaves and perhaps even more so because they're now inflicting delusion and harm on others so you understand once you can find your the freedom of your mind the freedom of your own heart then there's nothing that anyone can take from you. And there's a famous uh, fighter pilot in Vietnam that Ryan Holiday talks a lot about. I think his name is John Stockdale. And he got shot down over Vietnam. And as he, I think it was as he was like falling from the sky or when he got captured, he was like, I am now entering the world of Epictetus. <laughs> and, you know, he went through this like super hardcore, intense, traumatic situation but was able to sustain his sanity and his inner freedom through his practice of stoicism, recognizing like, okay, I'm now being tested within my philosophy. It's no longer just a mental exercise. I'm, this is real. I'm now in a, in a Viet Cong prison being tortured and I'm now going to have to apply these teachings. And it, from what I understand, it provided tremendous solace and perseverance freedom even though the environment was in complete contrary to that marcus aurelius your principles can't be extinguished unless you snuff out the thoughts that feed them for it's continually in your power to reignite new ones it's possible to start living again <laughs> see things anew as you once did this is how to restart life you know, this is like a really simple yet powerful thing that just recognizing like you're the one that's making yourself miserable, not other people. You're the one that chooses to be depressed or be happy, not other people or circumstances. It's always within your core to choose your own mental state. It just requires effort. Change your thoughts, change your mind. And, you know, I would kind of like offer the perspective too that feeling follows action. Take action and watch your feelings change. Do the right thing. Move in the direction. Move in a direction if you're stuck. 
any direction, ideally a positive one, and activate yourself. You are responsible for your own regeneration and restoration. And if you're sitting around waiting for something to change and you're stuck on what already has come and gone is dead, then, you know, that's why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Just let it go. Life is now and it's available to you at all moments. The source of replenishment is available to all of us at all moments. Whether or not we have the capacity and strength to check our own mind is up to us. And you could say all these things you want to say, but the reality is that you're probably not in a Viet Cong prison being tortured for 10 years, and you're probably not in a concentration camp like Edith Eager was. And if they could find this truth out, then all of us can as well. Personal responsibility. Epictetus, ask yourself the following thing in the morning. What am I lacking in attaining freedom from passion? What for tranquility? What am I? A mere body? A state holder? A reputation? None of these things. What then? A rational being? What then is demanded of me? Meditate on your actions. How did I steer away from serenity? What did I do that was unfriendly, unsocial, or uncaring? What did I fail to do in all these things? The Buddha says the way is not in the sky, the way is in the heart. And this is a great, this Epictetus' version of this in my mind. You know, you need to scrutinize yourself. You need to be hard on yourself, not in, to the point of like, oh, I'm so hard on myself. But, you know, you got to be like, you need to be, you need to be firm with yourself. This might be the better vocab word to use, whatever you want to say. And you need to check yourself. But you need to be disciplined with your own heart and like, what did I do that was unfriendly, unsocial, or uncaring? That, like, that's a powerful question to ask. Because that's recognizing, like, that you and the other are not separate. So if we're caring for others, we, we understand compassion, suffer with. We're understanding our interconnectivity. So these are good questions to ask to keep our heart clean and to purify the defilements that prevent us from walking with an open heart. Seneca, I will keep constant watch over myself and most usefully will put up each day for review, for this is what makes us evil, that none of us look back upon our own lives. We reflect upon only that which we are about to do, and yet our plans for the future descend from the past. In the initiatic tradition, they have a meditation called the recapitulation meditation ideas. You go back at the end of your night and you just look at what was happening to you in the day. What was the most significant interaction? What was the lesson learned from it? What did you do? What could you have done better? Where did you fail? Where did you succeed? And to scrutinize yourself, to not be a victim of habit. How can we change? How can we improve? Not taking a perspective there's something wrong with us necessarily, but just that we can always do better. We can, we must keep vigilance over ourselves. And this is like a very much in the Dhammapada too. It's like, I will keep constant watch over myself. It's an uncomfortable thing. That's why we choose to watch TV instead. Netflix and mind-numbing things. Mind-numbing, right? We want to numb our minds because we can't deal with the discomfort of watching ourselves. 
But that's not what the wise do. That's not what the great ones do. They watch themselves. And even if you do watch TV, watch yourself watching TV. You know, work on it from there. Everything is workable. It's not TV that's bad. Remember, it's our perspective about it. So applying stoic principles to TV. I personally don't really watch TV at all, but nonetheless, you get what I'm saying here. <laughs> so keep constant watch over myself. Remain vigilant, observant, reflect, and understand that our plans for the future descend from the past. Our next action is based on what we've already been doing. So scrutinize what you've been doing to ensure that you don't find yourself in another situation. Seneca. Let's pass over to the really rich. How often the occasions they look just like the poor. When they travel abroad, they must restrict their baggage. And when haste is necessary, they dismiss their entourage. And those who are in the army, how few of their possessions they get to keep. So, I see this as him just knocking down our obsession with material things. Understanding that even the really wealthy, they have these intense human struggles. They behave just like everybody else. And their own struggles are not alleviated by wealth. And that ultimately our freedom and salvation has nothing to do with our possessions. And on some levels they can be more of a distraction than anything else. And I like what Holiday writes here. He says, The author F. Scott Fitzgerald, who often glamorized the lifestyles of the rich and famous in books like The Great Gatsby, opens one of his short stories with the now classic line, Let me tell you about the very rich. They are different from you and me. A few years after this story was published, his friend Ernest Hemingway teased Fitzgerald by writing, Yes, they have more money. <laughs> That's it. External things can't fix internal issues. Don't judge a person's insides by their outsides. So, interesting too, because Seneca was a very, very wealthy person. And on some levels, I think a little like extravagant too, from what I recall hearing about. Nonetheless... Uh, I don't think it knocks the truth of what he's speaking to here. Marcus Aurelius. From Rusticus, I learned to read carefully and not be satisfied with a rough understanding of the whole, and not to agree too quickly with those who have a lot to say about something. So, Ryan Holiday is saying that in the first book of his meditations, he begins with gratitude. And he thanks one of the leading teachers in his life, uh, Quintus Junius Rusticus, um, and who also introduced Marcus to Epictetus. And Rusticus loaned Marcus his personal copy of Epictetus' lectures. So what you have here is he is acknowledging his teachers and who passed in things, you know, being clear that he is, on a sense, part of a lineage and giving gratitude, understanding that, you know, his knowledge comes from others. And that acknowledgement, too, he's also still a student, even though he's an emperor and a deep student. You know, he's been doing it for a long time, this study, but he's still a student, even at this age. So kind of bringing on this concept of a beginner's mind very important concept in 
Buddhism, martial arts, yoga, this idea. You're always a student. You're always learning. Keep yourself humble because when you think you've finally figured something out, life hits you really hard and ambushes you in some way. So, not to agree too quickly with those who have a lot to say about something. <laughs> kind of makes you think of someone who's like a con artist and they're very convincing and persuasive. It's important to really understand that who are you talking to and what is their aim what are they looking for especially when you're someone that holds immense power such as Marcus Aurelius there which imagine no one listening to this will ever have that much power necessarily at least you know in that political sense but this idea that like we have to really you know not just give way to things because they appear in one direction we had to really like meditate about it we have to have a lot of mindfulness and patience and reflect deeply not just be like oh that sounds good this person sounds convincing like they know what they're talking about i'll go right for it no we need to really observe what we're talking to it might appear to be one thing but it's probably something else again marcus aurelius what's left to be prized this i think to limit our action or inaction to only what's in keeping with the needs of our own preparation. It's what the exertions of education and teaching are all about. Here is the thing to be prized. If you hold this firmly, you'll stop trying to get yourself all the other things. If you don't, you won't be free, self-sufficient, or liberated from passion but necessarily full of envy, jealousy, and suspicion for any who have the power to take them. And you'll plot against those who do have what you prize. But by having some self-respect for your own mind and prizing it, you will please yourself and be in better harmony with your fellow human beings and more in tune with the gods, praising everything they have and set in order and allotted to you. So... If you are searching on the outside to become fulfilled on the inside, you will never become free. You will become deeply corrupt, corrupted, poisoned, tarnished, drug into ignorance, perhaps even envy, jealousy, suspicion, violence against others. You are sacrificing the true wealth of the inner world for the superficial artificial and pointless and meaningless wealth of the outer world so one thing i like a lot about the stoic perspective is it's not about following our passion and being passionate and you know pursuing our passion it's about taming and controlling and mitigating and molding and shaping our passions until we're in a place where we're no longer obsessively chasing desire but instead we are able to see through the futility of desire we're able to see the emptiness of desire seeing that it always just leads to to more more desire that there is not fulfillment and satisfaction to be found from desires and that to emphasize and live a life of selfish craving leads us into a place of just 
horrific character traits is what he's talking about in here. And he's saying that having self-respect for your own mind and prizing it, just finding value in your own inner world, that allows you to be in the greatest harmony with other human beings and with the gods. And the gods here could just be seen in a lot of ways, not like necessarily literal gods, I don't think, but just powerful energetic forces of life. How do we harmonize with nature? It's finding our own connection to our inner life and not getting caught up in the illusion that the more we have, the happier we'll be, when instead it's the less we desire, the happier we'll be. Marcus Aurelius, erase the false impressions from your mind by constantly saying to yourself, I have it in my soul to keep out any evil, desire, or any kind of disturbance. Instead, seeing the true nature of things, I will give them only their due. Always remember this power that nature gave you. So this is, I think in a lot of ways, us being able to dispel darkness. You know, and this is also what I believe the literal translation of guru means is one who dispels darkness. And I feel he's advocating for us to connect to our own guru within. And of course, right, this is coming from the book Meditations once again, so he's speaking just to himself here. But it's the same premise here is understanding that we have the power to expel darkness from within. And that is in our capacity we have that power and what a tremendous power that is when we're faced with very difficult adversity this is something that this uh emphasis on utilizing what ryan holiday says the power of a mantra utilizing this mantra recognizing you have the power to dispel darkness within yourself and your own soul it allows us to no longer be a victim of circumstances we're allowed to be a creator and an actualizer in our own life. And simultaneously, while that's empowering, it might also on some level be a little intimidating to you where it's going to require courage and strength because we now have to take responsibility for what's happening inside of us. No one can make you angry. No one can make you sad. No one can make you happy. No one can make you feel love. These are things that need to arise up from within. And the way that I see it is that it's, it's a struggle, but it's something that is within our power and capacity to activate. And it is not dependent on external uh, circumstances. Epictetus. There are three areas in which the person who would be wise and good must be trained. The first has to do with desires and aversions. That a person may never miss the mark in desires nor fall into what repels them. The second has to do with impulses to act and not to act, and more broadly with duty, that a person may act deliberately for good reasons and not carelessly. The third has to do with freedom from deception and composure in the whole area of judgment, the assent our mind gives to its perceptions. Of these areas, the chief and most urgent is the first which has to do with the passions, for strong emotions arise only when we fail in our desires and aversions. Okay, there's a lot here that's great. So, to become trained in wisdom, the first step has to do with mitigating 
and quelling our desires and aversions, craving and aversion. This is such a Buddhist philosophy. But at the same time, right, all the wisdom traditions speak of the same thing because the inner life of every human being, while there's different cultural contexts, there's different ways of relating to nature and different social roles and things that vary, but the inner world of a human being is fundamentally universal, which is why the hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell acknowledged, is something that exists in all cultures at all times, including our own very materialistic and <laughs> totally deluded culture within the, the, the framework of Hollywood, for instance. So it continues. But the inner world, the struggle of desires and aversions, fear and craving, and never miss the mark. And right to sin, translation is to miss the mark. So I like that he says here because it's it takes it away from the moral failure perspective. It's not you're not a failure if you miss the mark. You're not like immoral necessarily. You've just kind of like strayed a little off course, and it is in the process of desires and aversion and what will lead you there. The second training has to do with our impulses to act and not act, and more broadly with duty that a person may act deliberately for good reason and not carelessly. What's he saying here? This is like karma yoga in a lot of ways. When you participate in the world and specifically in the process of service, are you doing it for the right reason? Are you doing it to be a benefit for genuine care from a legitimate place of the heart and recognition of our unity? Or are you acting from a place of desire of anger of wanting attention of manipulation is it coming from the shadow or is it coming from this place of more purity and also to do it with caution and awareness not to be careless and flippant understanding that as we act we set things in motion right and that things can go in very strange and funny and bad directions when we are not careful and this also speaks, I think, in a lot of ways to what Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, that the great masters would cross over. They were so careful in every motion and movement they took. They were as if a enemy in warrior territory. They were like uh, a person crossing over an ice stream with extreme attention and carefulness and mindfulness to what they're doing and how they're doing it. So Epictetus is advocating that we take the same approach. The third has to do with freedom from deception and composure in the whole area of judgment, the ascent our mind gives to its perceptions. And then he says, the most urgent is our passions, for strong emotions arise only when we fail in our desires and aversions. So our passions, or I just mentioned a moment ago, the idea of like, we're not trying to follow and unleash our passion. Although I'm sure there's a context in which this would make sense. But in general, we want to tame our, and curtail our passions. We want to have control, self-control. And we want to understand that strong emotion is not really our friend on the stoic path. If you're utilizing it for the expression of art, I think it can be very beneficial. But I think what Epictetus is referring to more is in our actions and interactions in daily life that are have consequence to them. You know, there's places where there's like safe space to have strong emotional, out, strong emotional outbursts, theater, music, martial arts, maybe on some level. 
I'm questioning that because in a lot of ways, martial arts, emotional control, but there's moments, right, to have these bursts of emotional outbursts, but in a, in a positive sense, right? You know, there's moments to be overwhelmed emotionally, but we want to create containers for that and do it consciously. And the main thing, though, is in our daily interactions, how can we keep our emotional center contained and controlled? And he's saying those that step begins with being attuned to our desires and aversions and focusing on them. Marcus Aurelius, take a good look at people's ruling principle, especially of the wise, what they run away from and what they seek out. <laughs> and uh, Ryan Holiday has here, what would Jesus do? You know, he writes that down as part of his interpretation of his other things too, but that stands out to me. The premise of when we are trying to understand right livelihood, right action, right intention, how to live, who we, what our purpose is, and what is the highest and best expression of who we are, it's beneficial to look at people who we perceive to be uh, personifications of wisdom or something like that. How did they live their life? And I would say universally, consistently, they've always lived their life in the benefit and service of other people. And how that looks is always different at different times. Sometimes that can be through the creation of art, other times through Mother Teresa washing people's feet, being a healer in the shamanic tradition, um, being a ambulance driver, taking care of kids, helping the homeless. I mean, there's whatever, there's all kinds of things you don't need to necessarily get too off here. But the idea is look to role models, have teachers, have guides. And Ryan Holiday made a quote, I forgot where it was and when, but he said, if the Buddha needed a teacher, which he did for the first part of his renunciate journey, several times he went from teacher to teacher to teacher, learning and mastering, learning and mastering, until he got to a point where, okay, I just need to figure this out for myself. But obviously the uh, interaction of the teachers and the training he received was essential for him to be able to figure, quote-unquote, something out for himself. It wasn't like he just went out and figured it out right away. And Ryan Hall is saying, if the Buddha needed a teacher... How could you not need a teacher, right? <laughs> so have mentors, have people of wisdom, elders, and observe how they, they walk and they move. Sometimes it's less what they say and more what they do that is illuminating. And not even what they say or do, but how they say or do it. The pace at which they move, the depth of where they speak, the vibration that is affiliated with the person. When you get around a lot of indigenous elders, I feel in particular they have a lot of this, uh, like this powerful vibration that comes through in different ways that they and, and simple, very simple things. Uh, just having been around a number of them, in the way that they talk, in the way that they move, in the way that they. Uh, are playful, but then also extraordinarily fierce and serious. So paying attention to those who have made it down the line uh, ahead of where you are and where you want to get to. Marcus Aurelius, at every moment, keep a sturdy mind on the task at hand. As a Roman and human being, do it with strict and simple dignity, affection, freedom, and justice. 
give yourself a break from all other considerations. You can do this if you approach each task as if it is your last, giving up every distraction, emotional subversion of reason and all drama, vanity, and complaint over your fair share. You can see how mastery over a few things makes it possible to live an abundant and devout life. For if you keep watch over these things, the gods won't ask for more. This is a great quote. I like this one a lot. Just talking about how we get so distracted by maybe trying to control, fix, and change so many different things in our life. But he's saying, no, focus internally first in your mind, your emotions, your attitude, your disposition, your likes and your dislikes, and then push that forward out into whatever action you're doing and do that action completely and fully. So it's very Taoist present moment awareness. And this idea of give up distraction, drama, vanity, and complaint. And it's very, very easy to fall into these pitfalls, right? Drama, vanity, and complaint. How often do we complain? And this is a really beautiful thing about Stoicism. No drama, no vanity, no complaint. Simplicity. Simplicity. Strip things down. We want freedom, justice, and dignity. Simple dignity, he says. Act like a Roman and a human being. Just take all right, like a, a pride in yourself, but not to the point of like an egoic pride, but just to have self-respect. You know, when we have self-respect, there's no room for drama, vanity, and complaint. Because these are the behaviors of little children, not the behavior of an adult. And we, and we want to set an example. We want to be, be an embodiment of the full capacity of our potential as, a, in his, as his case, a Roman, but also a human being, he acknowledges, recognizing that it's not just one culture or anything. It's... The power of a human being in the, is the capacity to grow up and overcome these defilements of the mind and these emotional, immature responses and reactions. Epictetus. If you wish to improve, be content to appear clueless or stupid in extraneous matters. Don't wish to seem knowledgeable. And if some regard you as important, distrust yourself. <laughs> This is a great quote, right? And in a lot of ways, this is kind of like the opposite of what happens in the mainstream culture. We want to appear significant. We want to appear important. Social media, we want to demonstrate ourselves as like living an awesome life. And we want to have portrayed the sense that we figured everything out. And what he's saying here is do the opposite. And if people are regarding you as important, distrust yourself. What I feel he's really trying to emphasize is that only true knowledge and power can come through humility and recognition of one's own ignorance. Because if you have it all figured out, then what's there to learn? This is the premise of having a beginner's mind. Coming back to Zen and martial arts and yoga, beginner's mind. If you are, if you don't have the humility to look stupid or clueless, as he says, in extraneous matters, how can you ever have the calmness and the 
presence and focus and patience to learn something new. You will always be too quick or stubborn or fixed to ever try anything new. Have the courage to suck at something new is essentially what I feel like he's saying. And also, uh, you it's not necessarily in our benefit to appear to be some great resource of knowledge and important because the, we all just totally mess up constantly and run our head into a wall or, or slip and and make huge mistakes and at that point it's better to as they say it's better to keep silent and open your mouth and be proven to be a fool so making ourselves a fool ahead of time can save us a lot of trouble is sort of what i'm hearing him say and at the end of the day we're all totally clueless and we don't really know what's going on and it's important that we apply this skepticism and distrust fundamentally upon ourselves and our own minds because we know that we're not seeing the picture clearly. Marcus Aurelius, don't return to philosophy as a taskmaster, but as patients seek out relief in a treatment of sore eyes or a dressing for a burn or from an ointment. Regarding it in this way, you'll obey reason without putting it on display and rest easy in its care. Hmm. In what I feel he's trying to express here is use your philosophy and your study of it to remedy your inner situation. Don't use it necessarily as a pedestal uh, to put up your ego. Don't use it as a as a tool that is fueling a superficial aspect of yourself. Use it as a way to remedy what you're struggling with on the inside. Use it as a, as a dharma to find peace inside more than something to uh, distract yourself further with. And you could also look at it like, how many books do I have? How many books have I read? How many things have I accomplished? Becomes another another task list, right? As we say, taskmaster, have a giant list of things you've accomplished. Can you just keep to the original intention of the practice, which is for you to find freedom and peace? It's not for you to own a million books and do a million lectures and become very wealthy and very famous with all this stuff. And uh, nonetheless, the whole, we only know about these teachings right because they were shared of course this is this quote in of itself is coming from meditations which means it wasn't meant to be shared but the importance at the same time i'm just offering a counter to this that of sharing of sharing your inner space with others because there's also a stoic premise of being in service to the world and benefiting others so it's important that at the same time we need to check ourselves but we also should find ways to share our inner expression with the world otherwise we are in disservice to the world and we're out of harmony with nature in the same sense um you go into the forest the birds sing the animals make all kinds of expressive sounds it's just natural for them to do that the trees bloom but the flowers bloom right but it's not like an arrogance that's coming from the blooming of a flower it's just a natural occurrence and then what happens right then the bees are able to come the hummingbird is able to come there's food, there's a fragrance, and it allows for the proliferation of the of the beauty and of forest and nature. So it's natural for us to express our deep, unique individuality 
and allow it to be in benefit and service to others. What we're talking, I think, a little bit about is just to be cautious, perhaps in the manner in which we do it, because if you become constantly the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, <laughs> you lose the present moment. And then of what value was the whole thing? It was pointless. The intention of service work is to bring you peace and stillness and silence uh, and connection to others in the universe. It's not to make you a frantic psychopath who is you know, bullying people and yourself. So it's important that we understand, like, okay, how to do something. Passions and emotions. Marcus Aurelius. Keep this thought handy when you feel a fit of rage coming on. It isn't manly to be enraged. Rather, gentleness and civility are more human and therefore manlier. A real man doesn't give way to anger and discontent, and such a person has strength, courage, and endurance, unlike the angry and complaining. The nearer a man comes to a calm mind, the closer he is to strength. So I think that's like a really beautiful quote, right? Because we can be confused with, like, I mean, for instance, masculinity, like, what's it being to be a man? It's like, you're tough and you're, you're hard and all this kind of stuff. But, like, he's saying, no, gentleness, civility, it makes us more human. In contrary, I would say, in a lot of ways, to being more animal. We have self-control, we have dignity, we have humility, we have patience, we have respect for ourselves and others. We have calmness because no one respects aggressive people, right? Why? Because it's so easy to become aggressive. It's so easy to become angry and reactive and violent. That's what our instinct, instincts pull us in that direction. So that is why it requires zero self-mastery. It requires nothing but uh, to let go of all self-control. It means that we are essentially an infant and we've learned nothing in life. <laughs> we have no values that are on top of our lower nature. It means we've just succumbed to our weakest faculties. And a person who's calm, right? I mean, just think about how difficult it is to get a calm mind. It's just, it's at times apparently impossible at certain moments right and like that requires true true strength to be able to do that and to purify yourself from anger and discontent complaining and you know rage and all these things and to be calm and gentle and patient like wow like that's true strength right and within that strength is a lot of power so this is why no one respects really aggressive people because they've just they've given way of all self-restraint and self-control so understanding like what is what is oftentimes displayed as like you know badass or tough is oftentimes just weakness total weakness and ryan ryan holiday here's talking about trash talking and things like that and uh someone that lacks the ability to be uh in control with their passions, right? Somewhat like in sports and things along those lines. And, you know, I'm thinking about, as he's, he's talking about the boxer Joe Lewis here, who was called the ring robot because he was utterly emotional. His cold, calm demeanor was far more terrifying than any crazed look or emotional outburst would have been. And from what I remember hearing about Joe Lewis, it had something to do with the fact that 
being that he was black and very, very, you know, uh, blatantly racist time, he had to have a sense of self-control in order to be successful with his work as, you know, as an athlete. And um, it's, it's interesting, right? Something also too about like Muhammad Ali, who was just like the most famous trash talker of all time. <laughs> and it like, you know, when you watch the film Ali, Will Smith, right? Portraying Muhammad Ali. It's kind of fun to watch Muhammad Ali trash talk. Like, and it, it kind of seems to me like on some level, like the origins of some hip hop music too. Um, nonetheless, uh, you have to be <laughs> conscientious of how these sort of things are employed, right? There's a difference between doing something because it's fun and it's like knocking someone off their game versus uh, you are lack control of your own mouth. Like that's right. That's too true strength, right? For, especially from the Stoics is do we have control of our mouth? Can we keep silence? Can we exercise mindful restraint in what we do and do not express? And just understanding, right? It's not manly or an adult, rather, to break free from the gender. It's not an adult-like behavior to become enraged. It's just a sign that you lack discipline and that you're weak. Marcus Aurelius, frame your thoughts like this. You are an old person. You won't let yourself be enslaved by this any longer. No longer pulled like a puppet by every impulse and you'll stop complaining about your present fortune or dreading the future. <laughs> so, the way I'm seeing this is that you have to recognize that life is short and that we need to take advantage and responsibility of what's happening. This is it. You're an old person, he says. You're going you're to go soon, probably. How much longer are you going to allow yourself to be a victim of the nonsense in your life? You must not be pulled like a puppet by every impulse. You must stop complaining about your present fortune. Your present fortune, not your present, uh, you know, imprisonment. Because, right, so they say that the, the past is history, the future is a mystery. But now, now is a gift. That's why we call it the present. <laughs> so, the idea of, like, can you see that the kingdom of heaven is spilled across the earth, that it's here and now, the eternal is here and now, the beauty of existence is in every moment and everything at every point in time, that here and now is your salvation of what you've been looking for. Heaven is here. Or are we complaining about heaven? <laughs> Dreading the future. Don't dread the future. It doesn't even exist yet. Stay here. You don't know what's going to happen. You only dread the future because you believe you know what's going to happen. It's a complete crapshoot. You have no idea what's going to happen. So take responsibility and simultaneously take advantage of what's happening. There's always a positive within every negative. Epictetus. When I see an anxious person, I ask myself, what do they want? For a person, if a person wasn't something outside of their own control, why would they be stricken by anxiety? For if a person wasn't wanting something outside of their own control, why would they be stricken by anxiety? Simple premise, right? Is if 
we focus on the things that we have control over and that we have access to, then there's nothing to get worked up about. We're able to stay equanimous. We're able to stay calm. We're able to stay at peace. So when you notice yourself becoming anxious, frantic, and frenzied and off-centered, genuinely look and see, is it because you're trying to control something that is outside of your capacity? And perhaps this thought experiment can lead you into a recognition that, wait a minute, there's no point in fretting over that. It's beyond my control. And is this anxiety helping me with anything? No. Release it. What do you have control over? Epictetus, who then is invincible? The one who cannot be upset by anything outside their reason choice. The invincible one is the equanimous one, the one who has balance, who can stay calm under pressure, the one who can have poise and patience. You know, they talk about like nerves of steel, like someone who's able to, like in athletics, like at the make the last shot, score the last touchdown, the, you know, in the games on the line. That's the kind of person that we idolize in a lot of ways, the one who's got like those nerves of steel that they can handle the pressure. I think endurance means something along the lines like you can carry the weight. It's the one that can hold the weight without succumbing to it. This is what we are striving for. That leads us to invincibility. Don't be bounced around, but submit every impulse to the claims of justice and protect clear your clear protect your clear conviction in every appearance. Don't be bounced around, but submit every impulse to the claims of justice and protect your clear conviction in every appearance. Anytime you act, speak, do anything, make sure you run it through a filter of discernment. Make sure you run it through a filter of your values. Submit it to the claims of justice. Don't be bounced around. Don't be reactive. Remain equanimous. Seneca. I don't agree with those who plunge headlong into the middle of the flood and who, accepting a turbulent life, struggle daily in great spirit with difficult circumstances. The wise person will endure that, but won't choose it, choosing to be at peace rather than at war. Interesting. I see this as the wise person is able to handle whatever comes their way, but when given the opportunity to choose, they choose to rest, they choose to relax, they choose to find solace. They are choosing their own inner discipline. They're not choosing to create conflict when none is arising. This is how I'm seeing it. This is what he's trying to say, I think. Saying that when we get into, when there's an opportunity for peace, perhaps in an argument, perhaps in conflict with others, perhaps in all kinds of situations that arise, just think about things where it appears there seems to have been a <laughs> diplomacy met by both sides of an argument. But then just because you got to say it, because you're still a little pissed off, you just choose to say something, right? And you just flare the whole thing up again. So this is what I think he's talking about is that the wise person can, you know, weather the storm, but they're not going to invoke it. 
They're going to find peace. They're not going to invoke the storm. They're not going to create conflict when none needs to be made. They're not interested in that. So understanding that we don't need to seek out conflict and violence. This is just totally ignorant. There's no need to do it. We can handle it, but we're not going to choose it. Seneca. Many are harmed by fear itself, and many have come to their own fate while dreading fate. <laughs> so, I think we can all relate to this as times where we are just in a place of almost like a panic attack over something that's just not required. And then what happens is we are get we get knocked off center because of it and then maybe the task wasn't that hard or the situation wasn't that crazy but because we weren't able to remain emotionally controlled we were not able to effectively complete the task and uh this is a quote right by seneca who was put to death by nero who was his student seneca's student and nero became paranoid that seneca was basically going to turn on him and so nero killed seneca he also kills his own mother and you know he just he goes out in a really bad way and the whole point is like you know he harms himself deeply not just others but because of his irrational paranoia that other people are coming to get him because of his power so many many have come to their fate while dreading fate seems to me in a lot of ways like a self-fulfilling prophecy you are afraid that something is happening and then you go and act upon that and maybe it wasn't happening but because you chose to act on the fear of it you provoke it and like in a lot of ways the thing that comes to me is perhaps the war on terrorism and a lot of these situations in the middle east uh special operations against quote-unquote terrorists led to many innocent civilians being killed in iraq and afghanistan and then what happens is those people out of anger want retaliation against the you know united states and then they attack them and the united states goes oh see there's terrorists and the cycle continues and you know no doubt that's a big part of why that war has been going on for so many years so avoid the self-fulfilling prophecy by protecting your mind from fear see through the illusion of fear and be free seneca you cry i'm suffering severe pain and you then relieved are you then relieved from feeling it if you bear it in an unmanly way <laughs> so the way that i see it, it's like don't complain don't freak out don't panic don't stress endure bear it you can handle the you can handle it that's why life is giving it to you you can take the bitter medicine of whatever it is you are experiencing internalize it transmute it that's what we're talking about he's talking about transmuting it this idea of like you have the strength the endurance and the mental toughness to take the pain that you're struggling with whether it's emotional mental relationship physical and you can work with it and it doesn't mean that we're perfect and we never like find ourselves complaining but we're striving for the capacity to transmute and i've talked about this one on the podcast before it's very funny right there's the guy he gets a nail through his boot a nail gun shoots through his boot and he's all of a sudden oh my god and burning pain they drive in the emergency room and give him all these 
uh, like whatever, morphine and stuff to kill the pain. They cut the boot off and they find that the nail missed his foot entirely. And this is a true thing. This isn't something I'm just making up. Um, and then there's the opposite situation where there was a guy in Colorado like in 2019 and a nail gun discharged in his face. And uh, he was like, oh, there was no nail in it because nothing happened. He's fine. A little soreness from the, the punch of the pneumatics of the machine. And he goes and just goes to the dentist to get checked up six days later, going to work every day, eating, sleeping, everything's fine. And they do an x-ray and they find that there's a four-inch nail lodged in his brain. It's shot through the roof of his mouth and it's like a centimeter away from a part that would kill him. And he didn't feel it at all. So the teaching here, right, is that pain is deeply, deeply interpretive and psychological. Because there was nothing that went through the guy's foot. But his brain told him, oh, the nail went through my foot. So the brain is creating a model for what happened and to protect the organism is, is generating pain from the brain, not from the foot to the brain. And then in the situation with the, the guy going through the face, you know, in his interpretation, he was fine. <laughs> and nothing happened. So there was a signaling pathway that did not get activated and there was no need for pain to come in because the brain recognized that, oh, he's okay. Nothing happened. <laughs> we don't need to panic. <laughs> and there's an article if you want to read more about that's called like the tale of two nails i think something like that and during i think uh, the civil war or world one of the you know some war that happened in that same article the guy was talking about that he found that people who would have incredibly severe injuries wouldn't necessarily have the same degree of pain of people that would have minor injuries sometimes the minor injuries would be significantly worse and this was a very common occurrence so a lot of how we experience pain has to do with our neurological, psychological, mental interpretation of what it is. So if you cry, I'm suffering severe pain. Well, that is the thinker thinks what the prover proves. And the prover proves what the thinker thinks. So if you want to affirm that, if you want to make that your reality, keep screaming it. You know, as opposed to bear it, and perhaps you can transmute the entire experience and find yourself in some transcendental place and learn very deep lessons about yourself and the work inner workings of the mind and the nervous system. And yeah, don't be a victim. Marcus Aurelius, we have the power to hold no opinion about a thing and to not let it upset our state of mind, for things have no natural power to shape our judgments. So we always have the power to keep silence. And that is a quote-unquote power to do so. We don't have to allow things into our mental inner space and tarnish it. We can hold our judgments. We can hold our opinion. We can allow things to be expressed. And we can allow ourselves to take the perspective of that farmer, right, in the Zen story. We'll see. We'll see. We don't need to have an opinion. We don't have a conviction, a decision, a uh, fixed affirmation about something. We can witness the duality of it and the fluidity of what's happening. And we can keep an open beginner's mind to any set of circumstances that arise. And in this position is a lot of power. Seneca. There is no more stupefying thing than anger. Nothing more bent on its own strength. If successful, none more arrogant. If foiled, none more insane. 
since it's driven back by weariness even in defeat. When fortune removes its ad adversary, it turns its teeth on itself. Yeah, so I think we've all been in that moment where we want to attack someone, but maybe we don't attack them, and then we wind up attacking ourselves. It could be mentally, emotionally, physically even. I remember being a kid and like being really angry, and then you can't hit your sister or something, and then you go and you punch yourself. It's like, it's the epitome of insanity and totally crazy. And arrogant too, right? Because it just begets more anger and more hate. And Ryan Holiday here is mentioning Martin Luther King, this idea that only love can drive out hate. Anger cannot do that. So uh, it's just pretty obvious interpretation. It doesn't require too much here, but just a profound observation because as Marcus Aurelius said, right, we get caught up in this idea that with anger there's power, that with anger there's, like, status. You know, there's a sense we get puffed up and we're all, like, self-righteous. And there's this, it's hard to not get caught up in that, especially when someone does something and it's quote-unquote justified. But what we're getting at here is that it's always toxic. And, you know, Buddha says that Becoming angry is like swallowing poison and expecting to kill the other person. It just damages us. And there was a study, right, where they allowed people the capacity to, I think it was like they could stimulate different parts of their brain uh, by pushing buttons. And I don't remember the full extent of the experiment, but the important part of it was, it was a very like, controversial one. I learned about this and listening to Andrew Huberman. One of the... Um, things that they did was if you could stimulate yeah you could stimulate parts of the brain that would kind of generate certain emotional states and the one that people were like most addicted to stimulating was the one that would make them slightly angry and irritated i think they would do so by giving them like an electrical shock and that was the one that people wanted and they were like why would you want to feel that way and the reason is because that when you get angry and mildly irritated it releases dopamine which is a highly addictive experience and is related to drive, motivation, and craving and makes you feel good and to push you forward in that action and dopamine always wants more dopamine. But just think about that. It puts you in a place where you're craving anger. We like, we're neurologically programmed to kind of like the experience of anger. That's hardwired into our neurobiology. And that's, on some level, you could maybe say it's because when, you know, anger is provoked in nature, it's generally a self-defense mechanism. And dopamine is also a self-defense mechanism, at least in my own interpretation, because it gives you a lot of strength, and it can numb pain, and it can put you in a place to move. You got to move. It all, it's all connected with movement. That's a big part of dopamine, more so than pleasure. It's something that's going to drive you forward. And I've talked about this also in the podcast a lot. There was a study with rats where one rat had, um, they had food, and two rats, each had food. And um, one of them, they disabled the capacity for that rat to experience dopamine through damaging its brain. And um, once it did that, the rat would not go to the food, even though it was like an inch away. It had lost all drive, motivation, and craving for the food. So it would still experience pleasure from the food, they said, but they no longer had the drive and the motivation and movement for it because the dopamine receptors were uh, disengaged. 
So even though I had to just move an inch or two, it would not do it. So just understanding that like the dopamine allows you to move and act. So anger is connected with that. And this is a very, very powerful system in the brain. This is the system in the brain that's connected to like meth addiction, cocaine addiction, pornography addiction, tobacco addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction. Like it's a deep thing. So if we can learn to work with the dopaminergic impulse that arises with anger, we are, you know, cultivating a lot of strength and a lot of wisdom that will also be very beneficial for how we apply ourselves in the outside world. Seneca, our soul is sometimes a king, sometimes a tyrant. A king, by attending to what is honorable, protects the good health of the body in its care and gives it no base or sordid command. But an uncontrolled, desire-fueled, overindulged soul is a turned from a king into that most feared and detested thing, a tyrant. So, speaking about the duality of human beings, speaking about the Bhagavad Gita, lower and higher nature, the conflict that we struggle with, and the importance of understanding this aspect of ourselves in neurobiology, right? We have the prefrontal cortex, reason, rationality, but then we also have the brainstem, reptilian impulse, move forward, back, and like the amygdala and, and our, our limbic system, which is just being highly emotional. Understanding we have conflicting forces acting in between us. Human beings are in deep opposition. So cultivating awareness and inner strength to push us in the direction of being a king rather than a tyrant. Epictetus, keep constant guard over your perceptions, for it is no small thing you are protecting, but your respect, trustworthiness, and steadiness, peace of mind, freedom and from pain and fear, in a word, your freedom, for what would you sell these things? Don't be a sellout, right? Peace of mind, freedom from pain and fear, trustworthiness and steadiness, respect. Understanding the true thing that's worth having in life is our own inner freedom. There's nothing worth buying anyway. Epictetus, whenever you get an impression of some pleasure, as with any impression, guard yourself from being carried away by it. Let it await your action. Give yourself a pause. After that, bring to mind both times, first when you have enjoyed the pleasure, and later when you will regret it and hate yourself. Then compare to those the joy and satisfaction you feel for abstaining altogether. However, if a seemingly appropriate time arises to act on it, don't be overcome by its comfort, pleasantness, and allure. But against all of this, how much better the consciousness of conquering it. So just providing in a lot of ways a way to work with the intensity of craving. Having the mindfulness to project ourselves into the future to understand where is this really leading me. It's going to feel good now, but it's going to hurt like hell later. <laughs> is that really what you want? Do you really want to carry that with you and deal with that? Or do you want to have the consciousness of conquering it? Conquer yourself. Self-mastery. 
reflect back the times when you enjoy the pleasure where did that take you then later you hate yourself and you regret it so understanding that that's not really bringing you joy and satisfaction it's something so petty and it's damaging you in the long run but to conquer it that brings tremendous peace and joy for the power of abstinence Heraclitus for to be wise is only one thing to fix our attention on our intelligence which guides all things everywhere so the way I see this is just not to be acting from a place of emotion impulse to not be acting like an animal but to be acting from our higher rational human spiritual capacity Marcus Aurelius Clear your mind to get a hold on yourself, and, as when awakened from sleep and realizing it was only a bad dream upsetting you, wake up and see that there, see that what's there is just like those dreams. So if you've ever gotten totally in a complete mental rut, sometimes what happens is we lose complete awareness of what's happening in our immediate environment. We're frantic and we're, we just we forget who we are, where, where we are, what we're doing and what's happening and the repercussions. We need a moment to just stop, pause, come back to our body and breathe, take a look around, take a step outside and just observe where we are and what the hell is going on. And not to be so caught up in our self-obsession and the emotional fog that has arisen. And like he said, it's really just like a dream. And this is a lot of, this reminds me of like Eckhart Tolle talking about just come into the present moment awareness and you'll see through the fog of your mind. And once you're able to see through it, it just feels like a dream. Marcus Aurelius, if someone asks you to, how to write your name, would you bark out each letter? And if they get angry, would you re then return the anger? wouldn't you rather gently spell out each letter for them? So then remember in life that your duties are the sum of individual acts. Pay attention to each of these as you do your duty. Just methodically complete your task. So just understanding our approach to things. Being able to keep our emotion out of the way. And understanding that and a lot of times, the first problem began with us. <laughs> a lot of times, we are instigating a situation through how our communication is. And this is my own interpretation. Right? I'm just sometimes I've seen things like I say things too strongly, and then someone gets upset, and then I get upset that they're upset. <laughs> and you got to just realize maybe it's better to be more gentle, slow, and cautionary particular about how you move through the world and deal with people especially when dealing with undisciplined people I'm not advocating to walk on eggshells but to keep a calm demeanor and project that into the world people pick up on whatever vibe you're at if you're in a frantic place you'll make people frantic if you're in a calm place you can make people calm doesn't mean it's easy to do it I've definitely made people frantic when I'm trying to make them calm <laughs> but something to keep an awareness about that we are impacting the world in subtle things such as our emotional tonality and our voice and that other people might not be as attuned 
and they will respond simply to the emotional tonality rather than to the content of what we're speaking of. And then all of a sudden, why are you so angry? (laughs) It's your fault. (laughs) Epictetus, it is quite impossible to unite happiness with the yearning for what we don't have. Happiness has all that it wants and resembling well-fed, there shouldn't be hunger or thirst. Happiness is not getting more, not desiring things, not chasing things. It's just being content with what you have. And like, just to come back to, you know, dopamine and serotonin. When you have serotonin in you, it just makes you present, just appreciative. Connected to others. The dopamine chase is like, it's that, it's a chase. You're searching, yearning. And then when you get it, it's not even really that fulfilling. It's almost more fulfilling just to be in the pursuit than it is to be in the obtaining of something. All it wants is more. So understanding like what brings us into a place of completeness, there shouldn't be hunger, thirst, there shouldn't be craving or a sense of lacking. There should just be a sense of appreciation, gratitude, and settledness. Epictetus, this is the true athlete, the person in rigorous training against false impressions. Remain firm, you who suffer. Don't be kidnapped by your impressions. The struggle is great. The task is divine to gain mastery, freedom, happiness, and tranquility. So this reminds me of my teacher, Maestro Manuel, saying, you know, yoga is not exercise. The true yoga is an inner posture. Saying the true athlete, same thing person in rigorous training against what your false impressions remain firm inside in your mind don't find yourself clinging to illusion and find yourself suffering don't be taken by reaction impression it's a difficult struggle it creates a lot of tension requires a lot of willpower requires a lot of awareness and inner determination to gain this freedom this is in many ways being like an athlete an epic monumental struggle to gain control of our mind emotions Epictetus remember to conduct yourself in life as if at a banquet as someone being passed around comes to you reach out your hand and take a moderate helping does it pass you by don't stop it it hasn't yet come don't burn in desire for it but wait until it arrives in front of you Act this way with children, a spouse, toward position, with wealth. One day will make you worthy of a banquet with the gods. So, just I'm just thinking about like the, you're at a wedding or something, right? And everything's formal, it's proper, you're on your best behavior, you're looking your best, it's celebratory, you're trying to keep the vibe high. You want to behave in the highest level of character capacity that you have. Don't be a glutton. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't be impulsive have patience things will come to those who wait good things come to those who wait marcus aurelius robbers perverts killers and tyrants gather for your inspection their so-called pleasures so this is kind of in the opposition to observing the wise person not don't just observe the wise but observe uh, the ignorant what is it that they are indulging in what kind of happiness realize like the darkness of those things vice addictions and understanding that you know maybe we dabble in those things in small levels 
but recognizing where that will lead us and what kind of seeds we are beginning to sow. Epictetus, remember that it's not only the desire for wealth and position that debases and subjugates us, but also the desire for peace, leisure, travel, and learning. It doesn't matter what the external thing is. The value we place on it subjugates us to another. Where our heart is set, there our impediment lies. So this is a good statement, right? Because he's saying that even if you are desiring something positive, it is tainted by desire. And Ryan Holiday quotes Diogenes, the famous cynic who said, It is the privilege of the gods to want nothing, and of godlike men to want little. To want nothing makes one invincible, because nothing lies outside your control. So, understanding, right, that it's not getting what we desire that makes us free, it's relinquishing our desires that brings freedom. And we might even desire, like, really beautiful, wonderful things, desiring peace, right? But if you desire peace, <laughs> that desire will be an obstruction to peace and it will never come. It's only when we're able to let go of our desire for peace that we are able to experience peace. So they say. Plutarch, Cato the Younger. Cato practiced the kind of public speech capable of moving the masses, believing proper political philosophy takes care like any great city to maintain the warlike element. But he was never seen practicing in front of others, and no one ever heard him rehearse a speech. When he was told that people blamed him for his silence, he replied, Better they not blame my life. I begin to speak only when I'm certain what I'll say isn't better left unsaid. Hmm. So, seeing this just as, can we have the patience and calmness and discipline to remain silent and understand the power of our words and that they can rouse a mob, that they can create a war, that they can they ha they can unleash all kinds of destructive and beautiful, wonderful forces, and it's our responsibility to understand when, how, and why we should speak, and what are the repercussions of said. And it's better that they blame you for being a fool or being ignorant or stupid or just being quiet and boring than they blame you <laughs> and for your actions of the direction of where things went. It's better to only speak when you're absolutely certain that it's better not to say it. Marcus Aurelius, you shouldn't give circumstances the power to rouse anger, for they don't care at all. Hmm. Don't take things personally. Don't allow forces that are indifferent towards what's happening to you to define how you're going to feel. Have the choice to choose your response to what's happening. Don't become a victim of your reactions. Epictetus, keep in mind that it isn't the one who has it in it for you and takes a swipe that harms you, but rather the harm comes from your own belief about the abuse. So when someone arouses your anger, know that it's really your own opinion fueling it. Instead, 
make it your first response not to be carried away by such impressions, for what time and distance self-mastery is more easily achieved. So just understanding right that it's not so much the circumstances, but it's our own thoughts about it that create the real suffering. And that we are the ones who really harm ourselves. You know, when someone says something to us that could be insulting, insulting or harmful on some level it's really only on the surface it's when we internalize it that it really becomes a poison so taking clear awareness and understanding of our inner space and that we are really the ones who through our lack of self-discipline become our worst enemy marcus aurelius keep a list before your mind of those who burned with anger and resentment about something or even the most renowned for success, misfortune, evil deeds, or any special distinction. Then ask yourself, how did that work out? Smoke and dust, the stuff of simple myth trying to be legend. This kind of reminds me of this poem, right? Like the 1800s. Something like Ozymandias, King of Kings. It's like this broken down, withered away statue of a former pharaoh that no one knew in Egypt. Or that is no longer relevant, or rev- <laughs> relevant in Egypt, and talking about how he will be eternal, but really there's just like a broken statue. That's uh, all that remains is essentially like his pride and arrogance, and this understanding of of what will come out of these things, this of uh, these misfortune, evil deeds, that we are just dust and that we are going to return to dust and we should take this brief time we have on earth as ryan holiday says not to be enslaved to emotions and make us miserable and dissatisfied but to be a benefit to others marcus aurelius another has done me wrong let him see to it he has his own tendencies and his own affairs what I have now is what the common nature has willed, and whatever I endeavor to accomplish now is what my nature wills. The way that I see this is he's saying not getting not getting hung up inside of yourself about what someone else is doing, even if perhaps they go against him, which is the case, Marcus Aurelius. There was an uprising, a coup against him, and he forgave all the people in who acted against him and he said let there be no senators who will die for this and teach them the true meaning of friendship and understand like that we have to take full accountability for what's happening inside of ourselves and in a certain way like Nietzsche says when dealing with monsters do not become a monster yourself understanding that you need to just remain steadfast and convicted in your own values and wills regardless of what is happening on the outside Regardless if someone does wrong against you, that's their problem, not yours. You have your own situation to attend to, and you have to set the example and be the one upholding the values that you're adhering to. Epictetus. Of all the things that are, some are good, others bad, and yet others indifferent. The good are virtues and all that share in them. The bad are the vices and all that indulge in them. The indifferent line between virtue and vice include wealth, health, life, death, pleasure, and pain. It's a pretty straightforward passage there. Going to move to the next one.
Epictetus. The soul is like a bowl of water, and our impressions are like the ray of light falling upon the water. When the water is troubled, it appears that the light is moved too, but it is not. So when a person loses their composure, it isn't their skills and virtues that are troubled, but the spirit in which they exist. And when that spirit calms down, so do those things. This sounds a lot to me like the the uh, metaphor of the lotus flower, right? It's like it goes to the bottom of the pond, all the defilements, the mud, the insects, the frogs, the scum, all the stuff that's down there, poop, whatever. <laughs> and then it's still able to rise up above every day and get past the defilements and impurities and bloom in a perfect perfection. So I see this in a lot of ways as like, yeah, there's things that happen to us. We get scrambled up. We get messed up. We make mistakes. We get angry. We do all kinds of things we shouldn't do. We succumb to our desires and our fears. But at the end of the day, there's something inside of us that is untarnished and pure. And it is in our responsibility and our capacity and power to simply stop, pause, breathe, reflect, and come back to that place. And once we regained our composure, huh, peace and right action will arise on its own accord. It's kind of like a Chinese finger trap, right? The more you pull, the tighter it gets. Just huh, take a deep breath, calm down, let things slide off on its own accord. Epictetus, when children stick their hand down a narrow goody jar, they can't get their full fist out and start crying. Drop a few treats and you will get it out. <laughs> Curb your desire. Don't set your heart on so many things and you will get what you need. That's a really beautiful image, right? <laughs> you can't get free if you want everything. You can't get free if you want too much. Maybe if you just want a little bit and you just indulge a little bit and you're moderate and you engage in temperance and you aren't clinging and obsessive and attached and fixed and angry and emotional and you learn to let go, perhaps you will get the thing that is really valuable, which is your freedom, and maybe you get a little bit of candy, maybe a Snickers bar, who knows. Awareness. These are now quotes about awareness, by the way. Epictetus. And a more, an important place to begin in philosophy is this. A clear perception of one's own ruling principle. So just understand, what are you following, right? Like, are you following Buddhism, Dharma? Are you following Stoicism? Are you following Hindu scripture? Are you following Native American stuff? Are you following the Christian doctrine? Are you following all of them and none of them at the same time? Are you following what that guy said or this person? Just understand like, what values you're trying to align yourself towards. That's where philosophy starts. You have to understand where is north? find north for you and from there action will follow but very first you need to understand what is it that we're aiming for Seneca above all it is necessary for a person to have a true self-estimate for we commonly think we can do more than we really can I like this quote it reminds me a lot of we do not rise to the level of our expectations we fall to the level of our training so it's good to have a modest self-image, not being filled with hubris. Because we oftentimes just get caught in this delusion. I think a lot of people, right, I've been talking about martial arts on this podcast, you envision yourself, if you were ever to get in a fight, and you think of yourself as like Jackie Chan, like, oh, I just do this, all this kind of stuff. 
and then it's it's interesting right when you when you spend time a little bit with people know what they're doing it's deeply humbling (laughs) you understand i have a lot to learn and i'm very limited in my capacity and this goes for anything right just like you see someone playing music and you think and maybe you do play music as well but then you get put on the spot and suddenly it's like your capacity to to execute is diminished greatly because of nerves and all kinds of stuff that's happening so having humility Epictetus these things don't go together you must be a unified human being either good or bad you must diligently work either on your own reasoning or on things out of your control take great care with the inside and not what's outside which is to stay stand with the philosopher or else with the mob just understanding right we need to re we need to orient our center in one place or another it's not going to work to do both we can't be both a complete conformist and someone that is just swayed by public opinion and someone that is following a conviction personal values it at some moment something is going to break and it's not going to work and he's kind of giving a warning here stand with the philosopher else with the mob it's an exclamation point after mob epictetus the person is free who lives as they wish neither compelled nor hindered nor limited whose choices aren't hampered whose desires succeed and who don't fall into what repels them who wishes to live in deception tripped up mistaken undisciplined complaining in a rut no one these are base people who don't live as they wish and so no base person is free understanding right that to live in a total hodgepodge mess is slavery no one really wants to be like that but to have you know focus concentration discipline awareness equanimity this is what we're looking for this is real freedom don't be confused by what's happening on the outside and understand that our awareness is our freedom. Seneca. So, concerning the things we pursue and for which we vigorously exert ourselves, we owe this consideration. Either there's nothing useful in them or most aren't useful. Some of them are superfluous, while others aren't worth that much. But we don't discern this and see them as free when they cost us dearly. Concerning the things we pursue and for which we vigorously exert ourselves, we owe this consideration. Either there is nothing useful in them, or most aren't useful. To understanding the pointlessness of so much of the action we take, how often we're just distracting ourselves and we're trying to obtain and crave things that are just of zero utilitarian benefit for ourselves and others and understanding that we must have this discernment because otherwise this will cost us dearly you know understanding things like you get to get someone that is like needing to who gets involved in an affair like they need to have another partner and then you destroy your whole family that's that's a pretty deep cost that you had to pay for that and you really ask yourself do you really need that was it really necessary was it really worth what you just charged got charged for it? No, probably not. Epictetus. 
In public, avoid talking often and excessively about your accomplishments and dangers. For however much you enjoy recounting your dangers, it's not so pleasant for others to hear about your affairs. <laughs> this funny quote. Same thing, just like the benefit of being silent and having the capacity to listen to others. True connection only happens when we're listening, not just preaching at people. Not just compounding people with our own lives, but having a genuine dialogue and not being fully self-absorbed and stuck in our own little bubble. Diogenes Laertius Heraclitus called self-deception an awful disease and eyesight a lying sense. So, we can't trust our own senses. We're constantly caught in self-deception. It's highly contagious. This is, on some level, the first step towards perhaps some true level of knowledge or wisdom. Coming back to Socrates, recognizing our own ignorance. And that we really just don't know what's going on and our perceptions are flawed, even on top of our lack of knowledge. Epictetus. If a person gave away your body to some passerby, you'd be furious. Yet you hand over your mind to anyone who comes along, so they may abuse you, leaving it disturbed and troubled. Have you no shame in that? So the same thing, right? We react to anything and everyone and all kinds of stuff, and we destroy our equanimity and calmness and centeredness because of our likes and our dislikes and our lack of control. We would not allow our bodies to be thrown and tossed about, yet we allow our mind to do so. And this is within our control once we become aware that we have the power to become more tolerant and take a step back from our reactive tendencies towards others. Epictetus, above all, keep a close watch on this that you are never so tied to your former acquaintances and friends that you are pulled down to their level. If you don't, you'll be ruined. You must choose whether to be loved by these friends and remain the same person, or to become a better person at the cost of those friends. If you try to have it both ways, you will neither make progress nor keep what you once had. Another quote from Marsonius Rufus. From good people, you'll learn good, but if you mingle with the bad, you'll destroy such souls you had. Simple warning of keeping good company. Are you surrounded by people who are encouraging you to move forward and grow and evolve and develop, or are you surrounding yourself with people that are pulling you into an opposite direction? And are you going to allow your need for approval prevent you from growing as a human being? Seneca, we must remove sins if we have a witness standing by as we are about to go wrong. The soul should have someone it can respect, by whose example it can make its inner sanctum more invaluable. Happy is the person who can prove others, not only when present, but even when in their thoughts. So, it's beneficial to have teachers, to have people who are of upright moral standing that we can right what would jesus do <laughs> we got to check and see like what is the where are our role models and our teachers who are the people that are elders in our life that are guiding us we need to have 
those in place so that we can be guided into right action. Okay, I'm going to pause here because this is a very long book. I'm on page 92 of 429. <laughs> and I'm going to have to make this many, many episodes. And it's going to be done over the course of quite some time. But my knee is busted up, so I have plenty of time to sit around and contemplate philosophy. But then even again, right, he's saying, they're all saying that, Time to contemplate philosophy should be at the very first and foremost of your priorities because it is your guiding principle. It is your dharma. It's going to influence and put you on the path for how you respond to everything else in your life. So I think that's one thing to understand. Like the humanitarian studies, spiritual studies, these are the things that need to be prioritized. I've heard Maestro Manuel say, it's like your disciplines are need to be the thing that you revolve your life around, not the other way around. It's not like you go and meditate when you uh, finally have time for it. It's like you go meditate, and if you have time for everything else, you do that. And I've heard them say, if you only have 10 minutes a day to meditate, then you need to meditate for an hour. So understanding like how we're prioritizing things and when we maybe don't come from a culture where these things are like supremely valued then we have to unlearn a lot of stuff to be able to connect to the importance of this and to realize the power of it and that's maybe the word we should focus on for it that there's tremendous power in studying all these things it's not just like uh intellectual masturbation it's a power connecting us to our true capacity and guiding us into right action so that we can become the people we need to be to do what we were sent here to do so I hope you enjoyed this first dive into Stoicism. We'll kind of go a little bit more and see how it unfolds from there. Until then, catch you next time. Peace.